Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I've had my coffee this morning. I am an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson, owner of Extreme Human Performance, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. And with us this week, we also have Dr. Michael Ruscio. How are you doing, guys? I'm a functional medicine practitioner. I've got a clinical practice in Northern California. And we also do some research at my office, and I just finished writing a book also. Nice. And we'll definitely get into the, the book and everything about kind of what is the outline for lifters who want to do-it-yourself gut repair. So I think it's a, it's a nice overview of a place to start, and we'll give them some practical tips of what they can do. Um, in the news, I've got a one study here, which just came out recently. It's a systematic review, meta-analysis, and meta-regression of the effect of protein supplementation on resistance, training-induced gains, I actually used an S here, uh, in muscle mass and strength in healthy adults. So, super cool list of authors here from uh, Dr. Morton is a primary author, uh, Brad Schoenfeld, Mental Henselman, uh, Dr. Eric Helms, Alan Aragon, uh, James Krieger, and then it's Stu Phillips is the primary author at the end from his lab. And as you guys know, Stu's done tons of uh, protein research. And what was super cool, I had actually talked to Stu about this last fall, is they went through and they, in essence, tried to find as many studies as they could looking at what amount of protein do you need for muscle mass and strength in healthy adults. So it's a meta-analysis, so they're grabbing other studies and they're kind of pooling them together. And what was super cool is that they're looking at the effects in resistance-trained uh, changes in muscle mass and strength. So a lot of times the protein studies are not always necessarily in people who lift. And this is the first time, I think, that they've actually tried to pool a whole bunch of those studies together. And at the end, what they found was that protein supplementation or intakes beyond 1.6 grams per kg per day uh, resulted in no further uh, induced gains in fat-free mass. So again, this is in the metric system there, so 1.6 grams per kg per day. So if you're a 220-pound male, that's about 100 kilograms, that's only about 160 grams of protein per day. So obviously that's much higher than the RDA, yeah. but it's lower than the kind of mythical one gram per pound of body weight, which I think is still an okay approximate. I know Alani, when we did the book in the past on resistance training and protein, that the number I came up with was about uh, was 0.7 grams per pound. So if you were a 200 pound person, you know, we're looking at around 140. And that was based on some older chronic studies. So it's 
It's definitely more than RDA, but it's not quite as much as I think if you went to the gym and, and pulled most lifting dude bras that they would come up with. Yeah, I always like the one gram per pound sort of dosing yeah. thing myself, too. It's it's easy to remember. It's practical. Is it excess? Correct. Yeah, it is, but w- without really deleterious effects, right? Like, it's the kind of thing yeah. that's excess but not problematic. It's easy to remember. Uh, usually, I've had some concerns where sometimes, like, in you know, and, and you know how this is, both you guys probably – you write for a, a an article for a muscle magazine or something, and then there are other authors in that issue, and they're talking about a gram and a half per pound or more. And at some point, mm-hmm. I think the, the the real drawback to that much protein is that you fill up on so much protein that you're missing maybe some of the preferred fuels, you know, some yeah. healthy fats and carbs. And obviously, anything that's anabolic like that, or your intending anabolism is going to require energy as well and not just building blocks, right? So you're actually filling up on that very satiating protein and then, oops, you overdid it. So, Yeah, I've done that on sort of some of the classic self-report hard gainers where they come in and they're eating like, you know, a 200-pound person is eating, you know, 300-plus grams of protein a day. And I'll slowly just kind of scale them back over several weeks to – maybe 150, 160, and a lot of times they just kind of start freaking out. Exactly what you said, Lonnie, they just, if they're eating that much protein, it's hard for them to get in the amount of calories that they need, and especially if they're getting a caloric surplus, you know, they're not going to wither away only having 160 grams of protein a day. They're going to be more than fine. Right on. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Mike. I, I saw that study, and I, I thought that was really interesting. I was going to shoot that to you in an email, but I feel like I send you so many studies as is, I didn't want to kind of overwhelm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always have full studies. Your other protein is cool, too. <laughs> and what do you think about um, – I've seen – and I, I, I don't dabble as much in body composition as you guys do, but I'm just curious if you've ever seen someone who they're, – they're just going way too high protein at the expense of, of carbohydrate intake because they've heard that for, for gains – muscle gain specifically, the best thing to do is up their protein. And and I've seen kind of what you're saying where they're they're not getting as much carbs in or they've been kind of indoctrinated into in thinking that they shouldn't eat you know, too much starchy carbs, right? Maybe they're, they're paleo and they're saying I shouldn't eat any grains. And so they're going fairly low carb, high protein, which is kind of like a weight loss diet and they're trying to gain weight. And then you finally kind of change around some of their macros and they finally respond. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I see that a lot with, um, especially guys who lift a lot, who probably did a little too much of their own internet research. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even in some other athletes, um, I talked to more of an endurance athlete the other day, and her carbohydrate intake was so low, and she was, you know, doing a lot of, you know, good training, had someone helping her with her training, but she was doing some form of pretty intense to moderate exercise, you know, six, seven days a week. You know, on top of her other, you know, life and everything else. And yeah, so her performance had just started tanking, doesn't feel very good. And the main thing we had her do is just slowly start increasing carbohydrate amounts usually. Um, fat, yeah, some guys, once you get to a certain point, you'll need to increase their fat. But if they're at like 80-ish grams per day, it's a rough ballpark, that's usually fine. And then I'll just keep scaling up their carbohydrates. And if they can stay body weight neutral and their performance keeps going up um, i'll even just keep increasing them more and more and see how high we can actually get them to be weight stable at and then decide what their goals are from that point 
Yeah. What's your thoughts, Lonnie? Yeah. Well, I mean, old school, like clinical dietetics concept is that carbohydrates are protein sparing, right? And there are some, mm -hmm. all kinds of reasons mm -hmm. for that from glycogen deposition and cell swelling to, you know, uh, hormonal responses from SHBG reduction to, you know, just yeah. uh, anti-catabolic. Yeah. Anti-catabolic effects, yeah. more insulin around all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, I don't think you can simply, it's not as simple as just eating more protein. Any physiologist, right, or physician is, is going to say, listen, this is not an endlessly linear thing because then anybody could be, you know, 270 pounds ripped, jacked, if they simply could force in enough protein. And that's, that's just not how it works. So. Yeah. Cool. Hey, uh, um, actually, Mike, I did. I just stumbled across a, a paper this morning. I wanted to mention. I think it's topical. Nice. Uh, I, I got this through Science Daily, um, and uh, this would be something that Dr. Ruscio would is probably aware of. But this is from just February of this year, so it's not old. It says genetics or lifestyle. What's more important in shaping our microbiome? Um, mm. So it was an interesting paper that basically they were they were suggesting that. The diversity in your gut, uh, some researchers have suggested that the variation really begins with your genes. Uh, but this paper essentially just said that the, the environment that underwrites those different bacterial populations is largely, or at least partly genetically determined. But I believe they said only about 2% uh, contribution from your genes to the actual populations of the, you know, that are inhabiting your gut. So their, their conclusion here, let's see, it says, if these findings are further validated, basically, the, you know, there's a, there, the connection between our microbiome, our genetics, and our health will become clearer. But yeah, this is sort of challenging the concept. If you, actually, the title of the, the paper itself this is Rothschild and, co and colleagues. Environment dominates over host genetics in shaping human gut microbiota. So that was from Nature, 2018, February. So anyway, mm. I thought that was interesting. That's sort of what I, in the classroom, when I, when I talk about body fatness, there's something I show called the pie graph of hope. And it shows that genetics are not like 99% of the picture and you're just predestined to have a certain phenotype or you know certain body. Uh, in fact, lifestyle plays the larger role and that's kind of what this paper is saying as well so sorry i haven't dug into that deeper it's just something that i saw this morning but i thought that's sort of topical with today sure yeah, yeah. I, I, I find that uh, very interesting and i'm just pulling up that paper I, I had not come across that one in particular but uh i just pulled it up you know i see it's published in nature and i'm gonna have a deeper look myself but that certainly makes sense to me that you'd see a genetic component and we know there's certain polymorphisms that impact either gut immune function or the ability more specifically of the gut immune system to regulate things like fungus, for example, there's card nine. Um, and I believe card nine and Dectin one are two polymorphisms that regulate fungal uh, colonization in the guts. And they've been correlated at least loosely with Crohn's disease. Uh, and there's some speculation that one of the initiating factors or, or even continually propagating factors in Crohn's is the lack of ability to regulate fungal levels mm. in the gut. Mm. 
Hmm. And this may be this may be why we see some antibiotic therapy that can help induce remission in IBD. Antibiotics won't really work against antifungals, but I think it at least establishes a premise that there may be a hard uh, th- th- there may be an, uh, a uh, somewhat compromised ability to regulate flora in the gut in in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, but but you know you look at that and then you say, well, we know that there are some simple dietary changes that can induce remission in inflammatory bowel disease. Mm-hmm. And we know that there are some probiotics that can uh, help with remission. And, and we know that IBD and IBS have a component of stress associated with them where they can stress can, can trigger relapse. So while there does seem to be this genetic component to it, I think there's a lot you can do to shape the environment in, in your favor. And, and that's actually one of the main premises I develop in the book, which is the, the gut is really an ecosystem and that ecosystem lives in the environment of your body. And so if you can create the, the right host factors, then you'll create a more hospitable environment for healthy bacteria. And, and that's kind of one of the main premises that we build from. So I agree with you completely. I think that environment does play a hefty role in your microbiota. Yeah, here's an actual quote from the paper. It says, um, the scientist analyzing the data concluded that diet and lifestyle are by far the more dominant factors shaping our microbiome composition. And I'll be honest, that's one of the things that's confused me a little bit in the past couple of years as more and more papers come out on the topic that, you know, I heard, I, I was listening to, to um, Science Friday and they were saying, you don't really completely rewrite the different populations. You just sort of influence them in one way or the other. And it really kind of led me to believe, and I think we might have discussed this last time you were on, but, you know, to what extent, how, how big is that? I mean, here in this paper, they're saying clearly lifestyle and, and what you eat are the, the biggest factors. And yet in the past, I've heard that you're not, it's not like you're just wiping the slate clean and rewriting and repopulating all the good guys, quote unquote, you know, and eliminating the starving off the bad guys, unquote, you know. Uh, and it always makes me wonder, like, to what extent do you actually recompose that ecosystem? Right. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think along those same lines, the, the question that I look to is, what's the clinical significance of that? Right. Because there, there's almost two conversations here happening at the same time. One is the academic conversation, just monitoring, you know, uh, by stimulus X, let's say it's the dietary stimulus. Will that produce a consistent and significant shift in the microbiota? And then there, there's a lot of challenges even with that, uh, how you set up the microbiota assay and the parameters that you use for identifying when you um, when you cut off one population compared to another based upon the sensitivity of the analysis and what you're considering normal, high, or low. There's a lot of, of calculation there that still has variance that's being worked out in the research that, that makes even answering that question difficult. The perhaps simpler question is, how can we have a, a clinically meaningful impact using interventions that influence the microbiota. And, and that's kind of where I start uh, because they're, I mean, they've shown, for example, that if you, the, the frequency of vacuuming your house influences your microbiota. So there yeah. are so many things, there are so many things that influence it um, that it, it can be maddening. And, and so what I try to do is almost reverse engineer from the interventions that we know improve the health of the host and then trace backwards and look at what's happening to the microbiota along the way and see if we can piece together some clues 
because there's there's a lot going on there and and we're still very early in our understanding with a lot of the microbiota mapping and how that correlates to health and and um, and all that right that that's what what fascinates me I guess is that it's clearly a mechanism by which a lot of these signs and symptoms would happen, but it's not the only one, and we can't over-obsess that, you know, this is the absolute controlling factor, you know, but obviously it plays a role. So. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, one of the things I, I spend a fair amount of time doing in, in the clinic is talking my patients out of, you know, uh, a, you know a, a microbiota angle that they think is responsible. They, they think they have candida. And they are starting to try to make all of their dietary and treatment decisions in the lens of candida, which is which is good in one sense because people are becoming you know acknowledging of the importance of the gut, but it's bad in another sense because it's too reductionistic. So it's important to you know maintain a broad view of of one's gut health so that you don't get uh, you know pigeonholed into well I'm going to eat low carb and I'm going to avoid any starches because. I have quote unquote candida and I've heard that's bad for candida while this person may metabolically clearly need more carbohydrate in their diet and you can tell that they're just putting themselves under way too much stress if they go low carb but they heard that carbs are bad for candida so they're going low carb and and not listening to their body so I guess in my ramble here the the one important thing to keep in mind is that if it's uh, if it's the right type of intervention it should improve the health of the host and and not to get overly wrapped up in what's happening with one population or, or a few organisms as an as a intermediary. I think that's why you're so valuable, right? I, I have a friend who's a, he's an endocrinologist and, you know, I'll take him papers and stuff and he'll be like, I appreciate that line. That is fascinating. That's a cool mechanism. But to your point about being too reductionist, Mike and I have actually discussed, you know, how science is necessarily yeah. reductionist, but then what um, he would say, but patient outcomes, you can't just say, this is why, you know, and you have to combine all these different lifestyle. It's so multifactorial that, you know, I appreciate the science, but we have to sort of use that evidence in, in more of a, a holistic kind of comprehensive package and, and look at how the patient's actually doing. And so, you know, I, exactly. I, yeah. I, I and really and it's, still, it's still very scientific. It's just we're combining, you know, clinical outcome science with mechanistic um, science and, and trying to look at all the information together and, and make the most well-rounded decision that we can. Right. Yeah. And that's, again, uh, you know, as a physician, you have clinical experience. I love, that's why it's fun to talk physiology with physicians, because that's one of the things that I don't have a lot of clinical experience. Most of my stuff in the last 10 years is just reading as a science consumer or things I've seen in the lab, but it's fun to actually see, you know, talk to someone who's working with patients and you know, like, trust me, Lonnie, it's this, you know, I know that that looks logical, but this is the what this is what's going to happen, you know, because, <laughs> because yeah. you have that experience, you know. I definitely have a debate between research and working more on the clinical side or even a coaching side. And I always use research as a way to kind of inform what I'm doing. And obviously, if something has been shown to be more effective, I'm going to try that out and see how it works. The flip side is you can't just I can't just throw an exercise physiology textbook and be like, hey, here's, you know, George Brooks's bioenergetics. Just go home and read it. See you later. <laughs> you know, they want you to, to translate it. And a lot of times clients don't really, I don't think, care necessarily about the studies. They want to know that, you know, we've read them, we understand them, and we're taking the best approach we can. But if there's 17 studies that say 
you know, this shouldn't increase their bench press, and it does for the client, they don't really care about those 17 studies because they didn't really apply to them for whatever reason. Right. I think it's always this interesting area where you're still using research, but you also understand what the limits of it are. And when you're doing kind of more as a coach or, you know, a clinician, the end result is you're trying to get a result for that person. And sometimes just because we're limited on the research and we're limited on how much data we can gather from the, the client or the, the person who comes into your office, you're, you're kind of doing this balancing act between uh, both of them at the same time, which yeah, mm-hmm. leads to many interesting internet discussions that I don't like to participate in. I think it's worth mention to almost play devil's advocate on this, which is sometimes you have a clinician who I think hides behind the excuse of, well, clinically I see this. And certainly that that can be a valuable observation, not taking anything away from that. But sometimes being human, we're we're amenable to bias. And I've definitely seen people who you can tell kind of have their mind made up and they keep saying, well, clinically – I do this and patients get better. And sure, I mean, I can I can tell you patients getting better from lots of different things. The, the question is, is that the highest probability to produce improvement treatment or are you ignoring the 70% failure rate of this treatment and focusing on the 30 because you're so biased to thinking that that treatment should be more effective than it is. And, and so, um, you know, I know it's getting maybe a little bit off topic, but it's important I think, especially for clinicians, not to just hide behind, I see this work clinically, but to really always be objectively assessing what you're doing and trying to trim the least effective and and move toward the more effective constantly with with time. In support of that, there was, um, there's an interesting paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And listeners, you can actually go to the uh, Oxford's CEBM, their Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, and they looked at age or years in practice alone on outcomes and actually it was related to poorer outcomes and i think Mm. from what you're saying right not that clinical experience doesn't matter we were just saying i was just saying i value that and at the same time if that's all you do there is that sort of bias and we see that in coaching right in in resistance Mm -hmm. training too trust me i've seen this again and again well you're kind of an n of one so you you also have to go look at the what the data say so, yeah, but I, I thought that was interesting that clinical experience or years in practice alone led to poorer outcomes. And I think it's because of what you just said, Michael, about the, you know, a tendency. I mean, physicians are human beings and they're, mm-hmm. we're, we're prone to bias and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah I had a, a buddy who told me once he said that to pick an orthopedic surgeon, if you didn't know anything else, he's like, pick someone who's late 30s to maybe late 40s. He's like, they're old enough to have had enough experience and obviously done through all their studies and everything else, but they're not so old that they're going to throw out and be stuck in their ways from all the stuff that they just keep doing day in and day out. So I thought that was you're kind of maybe similar looking for that sweet spot where you still want to take information and look at it. And when I present new data to other people, that's kind of the thing I look at is are they willing to take the study? Are they willing to read it? Are they at least willing to consider it, or do they just dismiss it right away without even knowing anything else about it? 
Yeah. You know, Mike, to invoke something that you often say is research is is a it's a mean from a it's a group average, you know. Yeah. And so one of the real tricks I would think with evidence based practices, how do I tailor this to an individual who may not respond like that group average, you know, that was published. So Yeah. And that, and that, and that that's where I think having kind of a larger I guess you could either say a hierarchy or if it's more complicated than the hierarchy, maybe an algorithm that you work people through. And, and that that's what I do in the clinic. And that's that's what I've essentially written in, into the book. It, it's kind of this probability hierarchy where we start people off with the interventions that are the least invasive and tend to work for the highest percentage of the population. And then as you progress through the steps for, for people who are are. Uh, harder to obtain response, we start moving them to the the other treatments that are perhaps a bit, I mean, I say invasive, but these are all natural treatments, so it's all relative, right? Um, but start moving people through the, the treatments that are a little bit um, more intensive, I guess you could say. Um, but they, they wouldn't be, for example, a, a exclusive liquid nutrition elemental diet would not be where I would start someone if they haven't even tried a paleo type diet. But if the, if someone had tried a paleo type diet and tried probiotics and tried enzymes and also tried a low FODMAP diet and still had not got much of a response, then a, a short course of a exclusive liquid diet as kind of a gut reset would make sense. Um, and so it's trying to, you know, position these things in the pro in the appropriate sequence and also look for some early indicators to to shuttle certain people in certain directions. And, and that's where I think, you know, it, it helps make some madness out of all these different treatments that have varying probabilities um so yeah i think i think that's that's one thing that can be helpful i'm sure as coaches you're probably thinking the same thing where you know there are some things that you keep in your back pocket for people who don't respond to more of the frontline interventions cool well let's take a break and then that gets us uh, segues nicely into the topic of the day Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. 
Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. We're here with Dr. Michael Ruscio uh, talking about what are the things that you can do as a lifter on your own if you suspect you've got some gut issues. So what is kind of a nice little algorithm you can work through? And I guess my first question, we kind of got into that a little bit before the break, is I see a lot of people doing a lot of fancy testing. And I think there's, my opinion is there's a time and a place for that. But I've, I've just seen more and more people come to me with just a litany of testing and two or three other positions they're working with already. I just wanted to get your thoughts on just on that as a concept, because it appears to me that testing is kind of one of those things that's kind of sexy, and it seems like every time I turn around and I'm not necessarily looking for it, there's a new microbiome test to look at this or that. Mm-hmm. And then I've also wondered, do we know enough about what is really normal? So I just wanted you to speak a little bit to your thoughts on testing and kind of how that fits in, and then we'll get into more specifics on what people can do on their own. Absolutely. Well, testing, I certainly think can be helpful, but I absolutely agree with you that we have swung too too liberal in our use of testing. And unfortunately, I am very confident in, in the statement that too much testing will actually make it harder to obtain results. And that is because with the more testing you do, you have a higher probability that you're going to be using testing that is either unneeded or inappropriate for that certain individual or more likely yet even and still is the testing has not been validated so what you're looking on on the paper is is just garbage it's just nothing there is a meaningful measure you see a bunch of numbers but that hasn't been validated it's really useless data and when you introduce information into a process that is not helpful you make it harder to solve the problem, right? What if I gave you an equation and I gave you one useless variable, right? One, <laughs> right? If you're trying to solve for X, but one of the other variables I gave you was an incorrect variable, it'd be very, very difficult. It's not impossible to solve a mathematic problem with incorrect input. And the, the clinical process is no different. If, if you're if you're inputting into the, the equation, so to speak, a, a variable that, is not helpful, then you're actually making the process harder because you're adding unneeded variables, This, in this case, trying to treat the results of, of a lab test into the process. So definitely more testing is not better. In fact, I would argue that more testing can actually make it more difficult to obtain results. 
And not only that, there's this ethos, you know, forming now in in the field of of functional integrative medicine, natural medicine, whatever you want to label it as, that is, I think, damaging to patients. And and I just literally yesterday saw three patients all suffering from the same kind of syndrome, wherein they had done fairly extensive testing, and every little high or low was used to justify a different diagnosis. And you know, these are all people who had been working with different doctors before, and they came in for a second opinion, thinking that they were highly ill, and none of them really were. Uh, one of them, the only thing we had to do was have her broaden her diet, think about food restrictions less, and think about all the diagnoses that, that she had been given by her other doctors less, and just enjoy her life. And she came back a month later, and she was like a, a different person. And literally, she said, I feel so much better. I can't thank you enough. And all we did with her was essentially nothing, right? We had her eat more and think about her health less. Uh, and we also had a, a health coach come in who had been to a, a number of training seminars, did some testing on herself, and came in and, and thought that she was super sick. And we had to make a few simple interventions but her symptoms had been responding after two months and she was on the right track with minimal testing. And after I had to explain that many of the quote unquote, you know, diagnoses you've been given from these tests are not actually accurate or valid. Uh, and then the third was, was a mother who was very concerned about her daughter and was, I think a, a little bit, um, maybe disappointed because she was expecting that we would need to do thousands of dollars worth of testing to figure out what was going on with their daughter. And I said, no, I've seen this pattern before. I'm fairly confident it's either histamine intolerance or dysbiosis. And we can start with a short dietary trial. If that doesn't work, we can then use some herbal medicines to treat that dysbiosis. And uh, if this is what I think it is, it should be fairly easy to sort out and we don't even need to test. Um, so, uh, sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but it's something I'm becoming increasingly passionate about because it is doing damage in the field. And, and of course I'm trying to help people get healthy and prevent them from things that will stop them from getting healthy. And one of those things is unfortunately over-testing. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Um, and for people who listened to the show before, I mean, I went to you after I did my PhD and got burnt out and in my case, we did do some specific gut testing. So I know it's not that you're against it but i think it's when it's needed and doing things that like you mentioned with the two patterns oh it's probably this or that yeah there's not really a downside to you know doing the protocol for each one of those and then if nothing happens you could probably you know do a little bit more invasive then i always think of like it's the new athlete that comes to you it's like you don't need the super whiz bang you know russian secret squirrel program for them they Maybe they just need to squat, deadlift, and bench for a while. <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, they probably yeah. need to do something basic and consistent, and something that they're going to do instead of trying to get uber fancy right off the bat. This is also yep. Occam's razor of you guys. You know, simplest yeah, explanations yeah. are the best, and it, it's actually reminiscent. I'm, I think about Patho one hundred and one. You know, with like the PT students, we talk about testing going from sensitive to specific. You know, you don't just keep doing highly sensitive tests and you're all over the place and you're getting false positives and chasing down, you know, non-existent leads and, and you know, and stuff like that. So uh, it just kind of echoes what you're saying. It makes sense to me. Yeah, I love yeah. the Occam's razor example. That, that's a great way of kind of encapsulating that in a nice, distinct philosophy. So for people who are going to, we'll get into what they can do on their own here. And 
last question before that is, I know I've seen you speak before when we were, we were down in Costa Rica together at Dr. Ben House's place there, which was awesome. And one of the things I found that was kind of surprising is people would assume that if they've got some GI disturbance that may be related to their gut, which is probably true. Uh, but you had also mentioned that other things that people can have, and they may not necessarily have any sort of symptoms of GI issues, but there may be a GI issue going on. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yes, and, and this, this is something that is very important because if, so firstly, it is possible that someone could have a gut imbalance that is causing and, and manifesting only as non-digestive symptoms. And I learned this in my personal experience, and this, gosh, now was almost 15 years ago, but we're seeing studies now that are, are really substantiating this. So we're, we're seeing a connection from the gut to skin, from the gut to the brain, from the gut to metabolism, from the gut to the immune system. And, and so we, we do have studies showing that the treatment of, for example, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can help with rosacea with restless leg, and rosacea is a skin condition, uh, restless leg is a neurological condition, we do see evidence showing that treatments for dysbiosis can help with things like brain fog. There's some evidence tying bacterial overgrowth to metabolism via cholesterol and blood sugar levels. Uh, we do see some, in this case, meta-analyses, at least one, showing that probiotics can have a measurable impact on anxiety and depression. We do know that rheumatoid arthritis can be positively modulated by improving one's gut health. Um, it, it, we also see an association between hypothyroidism and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We see one study showing the treatment of H. pylori having the ability to improve thyroid autoimmunity. We see another study treating a protozoa called blastocystis hominins having the ability to notably improve urticaria or, or hives. And other studies further yet still showing that people with gluten intolerance or, or more specifically celiac who've gone on a gluten-free diet but not fully responded to that gluten-free diet when they were tested had uh, 10 of these 13 patients had SIBO, two of them I believe had blastocystis hominins and one had a worm infestation or, or um, colonization. And after treating these patients with antimicrobial therapy, all of those patients responded. Uh, um, to the gluten-free diet. And then regarding gluten, we know that people with gluten allergy may have only manifestations of skin, known as, in some cases, atopic dermatitis, or arthralgia, joint pain, or just a depressed sense of well-being. And these, and this is being assessed in, in well-performed studies, uh, not self-reported or, or observational um, re regarding that last study on gluten, because I think you have to be careful with gluten also, because sometimes there's recommendations made regarding gluten that are a bit overzealous. But yes, we, we definitely are seeing now some fairly compelling data showing that you can have a gut imbalance that can affect other systems of your body. And these gut imbalances do not always manifest as gut symptoms. And, and, and so it's important to not forget about your gut health if you have skin breakouts, depression, and insomnia, for example. There may be a gut problem that's driving that. Yeah, that's. I always thought that was kind of surprising because people on the surface think, oh, if I have gut intolerance issues, I must have a gut issue. If I don't, ah, I don't need to worry about any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's what I would have thought. 
fortunately, when I was in college, I ended up acquiring a parasitic infection. And the only symptoms it manifested as were non-digestive symptoms. I, I had terrible insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, bouts of depression. Those were my, my main symptoms, at least initially. No diarrhea, no bloating, no constipation, no abdominal pain, even though I had an amoeba. And I, and I had an amoeba diagnosed via the gold standard, which is stool antigen recognition, meaning a microbiologist found it in, in a poop sample underneath the microscope. Um, so it wasn't some airy-fairy diagnosis. It was, it was gold standard diagnosis. And amoeba histolytica that I, that I had is known to cause diarrhea. But in my case, no diarrhea, just debilitating insomnia, fatigue, some depression, some, some brain fog. So I learned that early in my career that's helped keep me grounded and not drift toward only looking at gut problems in the context of the conventional kind of IBS constellation of symptoms box. Nice. Um, so in about like 10 minutes or so, because I know we've, you've got a whole book that outlines all this, which we'll get into at the end. Uh, what are some things or kind of a stepwise process that lifters listening to this could could go through if they want to work on their gut health? Sure. Well, the first would, would be step one, diet and lifestyle interventions. Because, of course, we want to start with diet and lifestyle because that's the foundation. And it's not a good practice to do other more direct treatments if you don't have your diet and your lifestyle in order. So there are some simple things there but that are worth mentioning. With exercise, it's important not to be over-exercising because that can, of course, increase risk of infection. And I, I do think that includes an increased prob probability, excuse me, of causing digestive tract dysbiosis. And we do we don't see literature showing that athletes or people who are undergoing a heavy volume of training have an increase of gut infection per se, but we do show an increase in digestive symptoms in athletes. And, and um, that may be because exercise can be immunosuppressing. And some of that stimulus is good, but too much of that stimulus can then cause problems. So you want to make sure you have the appropriate level of exercise factored into your routine, that you're getting adequate sleep, uh, at least seven hours on most nights, I'd, I'd say is a, is a good minimum to shoot for. You have some enjoyment in your life. You're not insanely stressed and if you are you're taking some steps to mitigate that and that you're eating a fairly healthy diet and with diet there's a couple derivations that people could start with a paleo or, or paleo like diet is one good place to start and there's also a low FODMAP diet and and these diets are similar but they're different a paleo diet typically removes using the term loosely inflammatory foods uh, grains, which for some people may cause an immune response or, or an inflammatory reaction, dairy, soy. So the, the paleo diet will remove some commonly inflammatory foods. The low FODMAP diet will remove foods that feed bacteria. And feeding bacteria can be problematic if people have overgrowths in their intestines or if they're sensitive to gas pressure. So people with digestive symptoms, gas, bloating, constipation, abdominal pain, reflux, um, we, we have very good documentation that a, a low FODMAP diet can help with those symptoms specifically. So two diets to consider as, as part of our step one, which is diet, would be a paleo diet or a low FODMAP diet. And if someone is very heavy in digestive symptoms specifically, 
They may want to start with the low FODMAP diet. You could really start with either one. The good news is, is that you only need about two to three weeks on one of these diets. And if you haven't seen a noticeable improvement, then you can move on and try a different diet. So um, that's a good place to start. And that kind of takes us through step one. Uh, and then step two, we, you know, we use gut supports. So underneath the umbrella of gut supports, there are probiotics. And there are a few different classes of, of probiotics. And, and we expand upon that in the book. And I can come back to that more in a minute if you'd like, Mike. But essentially, you can organize the litany of probiotic products out there into three categories. And when you understand that, you greatly simplify the the realm of probiotics and trying to find the right probiotic for an individual. Um, and then, what would the three categories be for people listening? Sure. So you have a lactobacillus bifidobacterium predominated blend. So most of the strains will be either a lactobacillus or, or a bifidobacterium. That's category one. Category two is a healthy fungus known as Saccharomyces boulardii. And then category three are soil-based organisms or also known as uh, um, uh, spore-forming organisms. And these typically start with bacillus, um, bacillus coagulans, bacillus subtilis. Um, and, and those take you through the, the three categories of, of probiotics. Now, in addition to that, someone can also use some vitamin D, probably nothing cathartic there in terms of news, but vitamin D has been shown to be helpful for IBS. And one may want to consider a digestive enzyme and acid formula. Um, and we lay out some guidelines in the book to help people understand if they need to be using supplemental acid or not using supplemental acid. There's some early indicators that can help suggest you should or should not use something like hydrochloric acid supplementation because that's a consideration also. Um, and so that takes us through step two. And I guess I'll, I'll pause there for a minute if you want before I go on to the other couple steps. Yeah. Do you have any questions on that, Lonnie? Thoughts? One of my questions is about uh, intestinal overgrowth, actually. Um, could probiotic worsen that? I mean, aren't you then feeding the overgrowth? Can you give me some info on that? Uh, great question. And so there's some debate here, and, and I'll just be kind of candid with you. I, I'm a little bit disappointed at what you're seeing come out of some of the prolific and influential researchers in IBS in the United States because they're taking what is the soft but anti-probiotic stance because they feel that probiotics may do what you're saying, which is, okay, we know that in IBS, estimates here vary, but a degree of IBS, a proportion of IBS may be caused by bacterial overgrowth. So if you give someone a probiotic, won't that make the overgrowth worse? Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, there is one study that in a very poor fashion supports that statement, whereas we literally have a meta-analysis showing that probiotics can decontaminate the small bowel of overgrowth. And we have other studies showing that probiotics can work as effective as antifungal and antiparasitic medications. So we clearly see a antibacterial and an antifungal effect from probiotics. And this is because probiotics do secrete antimicrobial peptides. So one of the things I think that is helpful for people to understand is that most probiotics do not colonize you and a good majority of their benefit, or, or at least a significant portion of their benefit is 
likely from the antimicrobial peptides that they exert. They can help to treat small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. They can help to treat fungus. They can help to treat H. pylori. So this is a, a unacknowledged but very important aspect or mechanism of probiotics. They actually exert antimicrobial effects. Hmm. Oh, that's that's very interesting. And you said colonized, meaning that they're only sort of running on top of what you have right now. They're not actually becoming part of the sort of permanent infrastructure, correct? Yes, they, they have a transient effect, and that is a beneficial effect. But more likely what is happening is probiotics, in, in part are anti-inflammatory, which is helpful, and in, in part help to reduce leaky gut. But I think they, they may do that via predominantly being able to have an effect against imbalances. If, if there's a fungal overgrowth, if there's a candidal, uh, um, candidal or a fungal overgrowth, or if there's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, the probiotics will help combat that. And it's not because they're colonizing you, but they still may have a long-term benefit because it does appear that once you can help the microbiota get back towards balance – it can then recalibrate to a healthier equilibrium. And as long as the right dietary and lifestyle factors are in place, most people can maintain that equilibrium. So yes, you can have a, a long-term effect from using something like a probiotic in the shorter term, even though they don't colonize you because they're a tool to help you reestablish balance. And then once that equilibrium is established, maintaining that is usually fairly simple in, in most cases. Very cool. Um, so what are the other steps? So step three is really in an antimicrobial approach that, that we recommend. And the, the, the next thing to consider if diet hasn't helped, if gut supports that some can be antimicrobial, like the probiotics, like we just talked about more, uh, and directed antimicrobial therapy may be warranted there. And, and so thankfully there are various herbs that can work in a stronger sense of being antimicrobial and that includes antifungal and antibacterial and the nice thing is is that we don't need testing to justify the use of some of these herbs especially if we're doing it in a stepwise process and checking in with your symptoms at the end of each step as the book protocol does so it's it's very personalized and within this step it's broken down into kind of three sub steps to help people get to where uh, you know, to, to what recommendation that they need. Um, some people will only need the basic antimicrobial protocol, but some people may need a elemental diet. Like we talked about a little earlier, a, a liquid nutrition diet that essentially gives the gut a chance to rest. And, and the example or the analogy I use with my patients is if you sprained your ankle and you were running three miles every day, it'd be hard for your ankle to heal. And, and, if you have a gut injury, so to speak, and you're eating three meals a day, it may be hard for your gut to heal. So a, a liquid, a short term on a liquid only diet can be very helpful in healing the gut. And, and so that's one of the three antimicrobial options that are presented in step three. And then step four essentially is a short course of, of prokinetic therapy, which again, we have some herbal options here and, and prokinetics essentially help prevent imbalances from coming back, 
Then we go into a, a broadening of the diet because step one was was diet and that contracts your diet a little bit. But we want to get people to ultimately the broadest diet possible. So in step five, we work to broaden the diet and step six, we use some therapies to feed bacteria and we're, we're cautious in this step because some people respond to bacterial feeding interventions like prebiotics and fiber and some people actually are made worse by that so we lay out some indicators for if you have x y or z or have had this type of, of symptomatology proceed very cautiously through step six if you have had x y or z or or what have you then step six is probably a, a better uh, idea for you. And then step seven is essentially weaning off the the supplements in the supplement program um, that we've outlined earlier. And then step eight are, here are some things to consider speaking with uh, your, your doctor about. And here are some ideas for a yearly checkup. And of all those steps, no one person will need to go necessarily need to go through all of them. It, it's very personalized. So some people may only need to go through one of the steps. And some people may need to go through all eight, but the, the point of the way the book has been written is it's not meant to be a, a standard kind of rigid protocol that everyone does because there's going to be a variance. Some people may only need a small gut tune-up, tweak their diet, use a couple probiotics, and they're good to go. So they do two, two steps. If someone has severe IBS or IBS with IBD or just heavy gut symptoms, they may need to go through seven of those steps. But the nice thing about the book is it will, or it is able to adapt to different levels of need, but also it, it doesn't make everyone go through the full protocol. So the person who only needed a little tune-up doesn't have to go through extra steps that they didn't otherwise need. So that, that's kind of a very brief cursory overview on the book protocol. Awesome. No, that's super cool. And I think that's useful to give people a framework to play within and to look at all the other information going out there so that as we talked about when we started you're going from more kind of things that'll probably be most effective and you know there's not a high barrier to entry to do them to going down to the list of yeah you know you may need to get to this point but that's usually the the minority so you're starting with the more effective you know, a little bit easier things to do and then going down from there Yep. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's helpful to not have to do more than you need because, you know, the the, the cost and the invasiveness of this, it's it's a factor, right? We don't want to have people buying uh, an herbal antimicrobial protocol if they don't really need it. Um, so yeah, I try to be sensitive to not making people do more dietary restrictions or more supplements than they needed to, so that this could be something that could help uh, a wide degree of different people. Uh, and I, and I should also mention that. You know, the, the book is not going to indoctrinate you. It, it's a huge pet peeve of mine. And if anything, I think the reader will walk away from the book feeling more confident in in their healthcare and not feeling like they're dependent upon supplements or that or like they're afraid of food. I can never have gluten. I can never have dairy. I can never have a high FODMAP food. That's not the point. The point is to understand these diets and use them as a tool to help you improve your health. And, and there's also a, a good degree of science in this book. There's just under a thousand high quality medical references that have been used to write this book. So it's, um, it's not just my musings, uh, certainly a, a large degree of my clinical re reflections have helped shape this, but it's also very much an evidence-based narrative. 
You know, that's very appreciative. You're talking about the invasiveness and trying to be aware of that because, I mean, particular to our listenership, I mean, bodybuilders live on a lot of those FODMAP foods, and it would be very difficult for them to do that for more than a few weeks at a time. You know, I mean, eliminating broccoli and asparagus and and cauliflower and, you know, a lot of these sorts of things. (laughs) Because, I mean, they, bodybuilders live on lean meats and these fibrous vegetables, you know, and right. to do it more than a few weeks at a time would be so disruptive. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of their, the foundation of their diet, you know, so. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I get that. And I, I see that distress over a diet is significant. Yeah, I see that. And that's what's such a gift about being in the clinical practice where I'm, I'm seeing people, um, but also doing some research, I, I have a foot in both worlds. And it's very important in, in my estimation to to be seeing patients because you, you get a sense for what they're grappling with, right? And, and you see the, the fear of food that a lot of people are walking around with or just the general struggles regarding diet. And once you understand that, you can say, okay, I can build this into the narrative of the book and I can make sure to address these these issues that people are grappling with, like like the people who don't want to go out for a social engagement because they've been so indoctrinated that they can never have any gluten. And yes, there are some people who are exquisitely gluten sensitive. Absolutely. I'm not taking anything away from that. But there are also a population of people uh, that are not that gluten sensitive or not gluten sensitive at all, but they're living like they have celiac. And and that's really problematic because it, it, it impedes someone's social life. And, mm-hmm. and and that is a big part of the health picture, uh, uh, your, your, your connections w- with people and your social time. And so it's important to take all these things into account. So again, that we, we have kind of this well-rounded approach. And it's not just taking you deep down the rabbit hole of gut interventions and then sacrificing your social life at the expense of that. It's trying to strike the right balance between all these different areas. Awesome. And as we wrap up, then where can our listeners get more information? Tell us about the the book and the name and best place to get it. The book is called Healthy Gut, Healthy You, and it's available on Amazon. It's it's available as a paperback or a Kindle. Um, And if they wanted to learn any more about me, my website is drrusho.com, which is D-R-R-U-S-C-A-O.com. And there is um, a lot of stuff going on over there, but if you just go to the homepage, you can kind of get an overview and, uh, and plug in. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on and telling, walking us through the protocol there and providing us with some awesome information as always. Yeah, so thanks, Doc. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Always fun. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. 
And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each haul of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.